Quincy motherfucking Jones. Holy shit. Wow, there's a lot to get into with this shit. Um, I tried to find a song to kick it off with that could do his catalog any justice, possibly. I mean, we're talking about decades and decades of great hits. So um, I kicked it off with Thriller, as cliche as that was. I just feel like it was necessary. But yeah, dude, Quincy Jones, holy shit. I don't know where to start. I really don't know where to start with this, but Quincy Jones recently did an interview with Vulture.com. We are not sure why he chose Vulture as his publication of choice. I'm sure his publicist had a lot to do with it. Maybe he chose it because this is the platform where he knew he could be the most honest with and he knew they would release the quotes because Quincy Jones is in tell-all mode right here. Quincy Jones is 84 years of age. Old people do not give a fuck. They have nothing to lose, and that is the beauty of old people, and that is what makes this interview so great, is because Quincy Jones is clearly saying things that he does not want to take to the grave with him. He wants this shit to be heard because he has experienced such a rich life that he needs it. He needs this shit on wax. He needs his life to be documented here. So, I mean, we're talking Michael Jackson shit, Beatles shit, Marilyn Monroe shit, who killed JFK shit, uh, the Trump shit. I mean, there's so much to get into here that I really don't know where to start. But let me just start with Quincy Jones is the motherfucking man. I keep saying motherfucker because he keeps saying it in this interview and it's rubbing off on me because it's fucking hilarious. I'm going to just start throwing random motherfuckers and everything. All right, now let me get into the meat and potatoes of these quotes. Um, Trump is probably the juiciest part here. When asked about Trump, Quincy says, and I quote, I used to hang out with him. He's a crazy motherfucker, limited mentally, a megalomaniac, narcissistic, end quote. Um, I think limited mentally is a really good description of him. Of course, he's narcissistic. Um, also, when asked about Trump, at the end of that quote, Quincy slips in, and I used to date his daughter. And then when asked about that, when asked to elaborate on that, because he just slips it in at the end of the quote like it's fucking light. And then um, he says, I used to date Ivanka, you know. Yes, sir. Twelve years ago, Tommy Hilfiger said Ivanka wants to have dinner with you. I said, no problem. She's a fine motherfucker. She had the most beautiful legs I ever saw in my life. Wrong father, though. <laughs> Yo, bro, this shit is too funny. The wrong father, though, at the end is just too much. But all right, uh, let's do a little math here. Quincy Jones is 84. Ivanka Trump is 36. So that means at the time they dated, she would have been 25 and Quincy would have been 73. Quincy, you are a legend off strength of your clout. We are assuming you smashed. And for the sake of jokes, we are saying that Quincy Jones smashed Trump's daughter when she was 25 and he was 73. That's just what I'm taking away from this. Alright, but let's get into some music shit because for real, for real, we are talking about the greatest producer of all time. Eventually, the interviewer does ask him a loaded question. Um, the question is, what do you think, what did you think when you first heard rock music? And Quincy goes on to say, rock ain't nothing but a white version of rhythm and blues, motherfucker. You know, I met Paul McCarty when he was 21. End quote. So this seems to be the format of every Quincy Jones answer. It's only about one extended sentence. At some point, he says motherfucker. And then at the end of it, he just says a crazy fact that perfectly segues into the next question. So he says he disses rock music, says rock ain't nothing but a white version of rhythm and blues, motherfucker. And then goes on to say, you know, I met Paul McCartney when he was 21, which perfectly segues into the question. What were your first impressions of the Beatles? And then Quincy goes on to say, They were the worst musicians in the fucking world. They were no-playing motherfuckers. Paul was the worst bass player I ever heard. And Ringo, don't even talk about it. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> <Brrr>. <laughs> 
So, so far what I've covered is basically Quincy Jones doing a really good job of pissing off white people. I mean, he fucked the president's daughter when she was 50 years younger than him. He is telling us that the Beatles are trash, um, white people's favorite band. Everyone champions the Beatles and he has the credence to be like, yo, I was in the studio with them. They can't play for shit. Those motherfuckers are some no playing motherfuckers. And, you know, who's going to tell Quincy Jones that he's wrong because he was there. Check the stat sheet. So, um, yeah, I'm going to segue into this next section. I only have a couple seconds here, and there's still a good amount of shit to cover on this Quincy Jones interview because there's a lot of shit that unfolds in this interview. A lot of jokes, a lot of serious shit, a lot of information. So, um, yeah, let's get busy, motherfucker. Are you a businessman? Yeah. Motherfucker Jones. How's that? Motherfucker Jones. You're... First name is Motherfucker? Quincy Motherfucking Jones, man. I can't believe I never made the connection that Quincy Jones is the OG Motherfucker Jones. Uh, shout out to Jamie Foxx. I think that Jamie Foxx would be a great candidate for a Quincy Jones biopic lead. But I know that Quincy recently reached out to Donald Glover to play himself. And I mean, who better to cast for their own biopic than the person who the biopic is about? I think that Donald Glover would absolutely nail it as well. I don't think there's too many people that could do it. But Jamie Foxx and Donald Glover are probably the top candidates. But um, D Jamie Foxx has already been Ray. So let's let, let's let Donald Glover have Quincy Jones. Um, yeah, but they need to make a Quincy Jones biopic. There's just too much narrative, especially following the hype of this interview. There's clearly so much to get into. This guy has seen so much. So um, let's get into some more shit, man. So this interview takes a pretty sharp left turn when the interviewer asks about the Clintons. The Clintons were um, apparently good friends of Quincy back in the day. Um, the interviewer asks, what are other people not seeing in Hillary, for example, that you see? Quincy says, it's because there's a side of her. When you keep secrets, they backfire. Interviewer asks, like, what secrets? This is something else I shouldn't be talking about. Even though we know damn well Quincy Jones is going to talk about everything and we're going to get to the bottom of this because he really doesn't give a fuck. He just knows that he should. So anyway, interviewer says, you sure seem to know a lot. Quincy says, I know too much, man. So like a smart interviewer should... He asks the ultimate question that you could ask right here because Quincy basically throws him the alley-oop to say, what's something you wish you didn't know? So now you put Quincy Jones in a position to say the craziest shit that he knows that comes to his mind. And what does he do? He drops a fucking bomb and says, who killed Kennedy? So now, as a smart interviewer should, this is simple. Who did it? That's the question. Who fucking killed Kennedy, Quincy Jones? Quincy Jones spills the beans. He goes, Giansana. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but apparently Giansana is a Chicago mobster. Uh, Quincy says, the connection was there between Sinatra and the mafia and Kennedy. Joe Kennedy. He was a bad man. He came to Frank to have, have him talk to Giansana about getting votes. This is allegedly a theory about helping Kennedy win the 1960 election with Illinois, that it was rigged. So I guess that this whole conspiracy is about the mob and Kennedy's interaction. Quincy realizes at this point that he's probably saying too much and he kind of forcefully segues out of this topic by asking the interviewer, so where are you from? Almost like some nice weather we're having type of segue, just like a brutal transition and, um, they eventually start to get into some Bill Cosby talk because at this point the interviewer is like, okay, Quincy Jones is spilling the beans on everything. Let's get some Bill Cosby talk in this shit. And um, 
Roxy, stop fucking barking, man. I'm trying to do this podcast. Um, so let me let me get let me get back into the show when she's done barking. Jesus Christ. Uh, Bill Cosby, dude. Um, Quincy Jones does not snitch on Bill Cosby, which is pretty disappointing. I mean, maybe he doesn't actually know anything, but let's hope that if Quincy Jones was aware of Bill Cosby raping people, he would, out of everything that he's saying transparently here, that would be one of the things. But, I mean, you can't snitch on someone if you don't know any facts. So I'll give uh, Quincy Jones the benefit of the doubt here. But anyway, enough of the gossipy shit. Let's get into some music. One of the most highlighted parts of Quincy Jones' catalog has to be his work with Michael Jackson. So naturally, the interview asked him about Michael. And Quincy says, and I quote, I hate to get into this publicly, but Michael stole a lot of stuff. He stole a lot of songs. State of Independence and Billie Jean, the notes don't lie. He was greedy, man. Greedy as they come. He also goes on to talk about Michael's insecurities. He says, I used to kill him about the plastic surgery, man. He'd always justify and say it was because of some disease he had. Bullshit. Um, He had problems with his looks because his father told him he was ugly and abused him. What do you expect? So um, that's some pretty sad shit, some pretty sad insight that we had a pretty good idea about Michael. But hearing it from someone that knew him personally um, brings more credence to it. I only had 30 seconds left here, so I don't really have time to get into, like, the Elvis Presley shit, the Marilyn Monroe shit. I mean, there's more. Um, there's Malcolm X shit. Um, there's more on Michael and Prince. He um, he talks about the time where Prince wanted to kill Michael and run Michael over in a limousine and uh, run over his mother and his girlfriend and shit. It's like so much crazy shit, man. Go check out the interview on uh, Vulture.com for yourself because... I'm not going to do another segment about this. There's just, there's so much. I hope I covered it. What up, Anchor? So I usually do sports in the whip, but I am so excited here at the NBA trade deadline that I just want to get busy and I want to get right into it while these thoughts are fresh. Where I left you off last was with the update of the Kristaps Porzingis injury. At the time, I thought it was just a knee injury. He got carried off. I was a little concerned and my concerns came to fruition because Kristaps had torn his ACL. He is out for the rest of the season and going into the next season, he is going to get surgery. We can only hope that he comes back the same player. We never know with ACL injuries, especially at his size. This is going to be difficult. This is going to be a challenge for Chris Stapps. And uh, all we can do is hope for the best because this could potentially set the Knicks back two or three years without our main piece. But I did just get good news that the Knicks traded... um, Doug McDermott for Emmanuel Moutier, and I do like that move. I wanted Moutier in the draft the year that we got Porzingis, so it's kind of cool that everything came full circle and we got him. I like the idea of Frank, Burke, and Moutier kind of competing for that point guard spot the rest of the season. I think that that's going to be a cool experiment, and that's all we can do for the rest of the season is experiment because we are not making the playoffs without Kristaps Porzingis. So I like to find out who our point guard will be next year. Um, by the end of this season, whether it's going to be Frank, Burke, or Moutier. But anyway, um, the Knicks really aren't the highlight of the news right now. It is the Cleveland Cavaliers. So let me just pull up exactly every trade that just went down with the Cavs and every signing that went down with the Cavs so that I could really get busy into this topic. So the Cleveland Cavaliers clearly upgraded here at the trade deadline. They improved their roster dramatically, specifically at the defensive end where they needed the most help. They got rid of Isaiah Thomas and Derek Rose, their two guards who were most definitely not helping their cause on the defensive end, which is where they needed the most help. In exchange for those guards, they filled those spots with George Hill and Jordan Clarkson. I think that George Hill is going to be a great fit for the Cavs. Um, Of course, he is better on the defensive end than IT, just off strength of his size and mobility. 
Um, he is also a better fit for the Cavs on the offensive end because I think that he fits LeBron's style of play a little bit more. LeBron doesn't necessarily need a dominant playmaker like IT. He just needs a commanding point guard, someone who is able to control the offense like George Hill. George Hill is a very reliable, traditional point guard. Now, Jordan Clarkson is a clear improvement of Derrick Rose and Dwayne Wade and Iman Shumpert at the wing because he has so much more energy. He's youthful. He's a better ISO player than all of them, and um, and he's better on defense, too. So, And I just think that they need new presence in the locker room. Rodney Hood is obviously an improvement at the wing as well on both ends, and Larry Nance is, some, is, is an athlete who's going to get it done, and it's going to be exciting seeing him next to LeBron. But they get rid of Jay Crowder, who was another, the loss on the defensive end. They got rid of Shumper, who wasn't doing much for him. Um, Dwayne Wade gets to go to back to Miami. That's great for him. And um, the only real loss here for the Cavs is a first-round pick. But they're trying to win right now. So fuck the pick. Use the pick. Um, yeah, I'm excited about this. They also signed Kendrick Perkins because they need help at big. That is the only question mark that is left for the Cavs is who is going to be the bigs. Because, of course, you have Love coming back from the injury before the playoffs. And you have um, Tristan Thompson down low. But neither of them are traditional centers. And they are not deep at big. I mean, they have, like, Larry Nance could play a little big. I mean, Jeff Green could reach and maybe play a little bit of four, but not really. Um, so they scoop Kendrick Perkins. There's there's still, like, a half an hour left on the trade deadline here. They could move some pieces and get a center. I just... I think that with LeBron, this will be enough to carry the Cavs to the finals. But I think that the key to beating the Warriors is having better bigs than the Warriors. And right now, it doesn't look like that. Um, I think that the Cavs put themselves in a much better position. I think that this unit will um, gel better. They All they need to do is get into the playoffs. It might take a couple weeks for this team to mesh. But I do think that the Cavs will be back in the finals, and I do think that they have a shot against the Warriors. I just question if they are strong enough at the big man position to get the job done against the Golden State Warriors or against the Houston Rockets because the Rockets could always surprise everyone and beat them or the Thunder. But regardless, we are talking about the Cavs here, and um, the Cavs need another big to um, to win a ring, and that's just and that's just my take. But overall, Cavaliers absolutely won the trade deadline. Good shit. Good shit, Dan Gilbert and LeBron. I just give credit to LeBron for everything the Cavs do off strength. I feel like he was probably in the front office in everyone's ear.